Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Oh, rise now, ye tarnished. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is Turn the Game Council Off Right Now where we take a pause to celebrate 50 episodes as we talk about what we've been playing recently. But first, our spoiler warning for this episode. Everything Metal Gear is on the table as normal, but I also want to add there will be light spoilers for Elden Ring, but trust me on this, I couldn't spoil the entirety of Elden Ring for you if I wanted to. Uh, I will be mostly talking about my first Souls experience, and Brian will be talking about some of the games he's been playing as well, so... Uh, just be forewarned. I believe Cyberpunk, possibly Halo Infinite, and watch out for sp- spoilers on MLB The Show. Yeah. Uh, it's possible, but just know we're going to kind of be broadly talking about games, but hopefully not spoiling anything too much uh, beyond maybe the first hour or two of those experiences. So we're going to just start with what I've been playing, which has been almost exclusively Elden Ring, uh, the game from FromSoft that has been a big piece of the discourse the last couple weeks. Uh, It is from uh, Hideaki uh, Miyazaki. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Did I get that first name right? I think so, yeah. A lot of the mythology was written by George R.R. Martin, which obviously means a lot to me or has a lot of cachet with me. Um, and it's my first Souls game, and it is one of the first uh, Souls games to go fully open world. And I, I don't even know where to begin talking about it. It's just I've really loved it. I've been playing it for I'm upwards of 230, 240 hours now over the last six weeks, and it has basically been consuming all of my free time. And it's it's interesting because I have almost like a decade of Souls discourse in my head. Um, before touching this game, a lot about like accessibility. And when we talk about accessibility with games, there's like two distinct conversations and one that I don't think deserves the label of accessibility. And that just tends to be how hard the game is. And then there is a question of actual accessibility, how accessible it is to people who, you know, may have uh, disabilities or just not be able to um, use a controller or look at the screen in the same way that, you know, able-bodied people can. So um, we're going to askew the last part. We will talk about how difficult it is, but um, that is not part of the accessibility discourse to my mind. No. And uh, I guess I'll start is this being my first Souls game, I've very much been interested in how it's basically taught me how to play this game. Uh It's all built into the world. Like, it teaches you right away that, you know, you're going to find bosses that you cannot beat. You walk out of the first doors, and you're going to see this big golden guy on a golden horse called the Tree Sentinel. And my first instinct is, oh, this is probably an NPC I can talk to, which when he one-shotted me with his halberd, you know, 
proved otherwise. But then it also took me another 20-ish hours before I was even good enough to take him on and beat him. So through like the game design, it kind of told me where I should go, where I shouldn't without just putting points on a map for me to go to or having like a like a main quest line, you know, set of stories and then side quests or side missions or anything like that. It's all kind of intermingled. Uh, the save points or the sites of grace, they kind of have a little like indicator, like from here, go this way generally to find the next site of grace or the next important part of the critical path. But it's never forcing you to go that way. And in fact, when I got through my first five to six hours, um, I was like, I don't know if I'm good at this game. I suck. Everybody I find just kind of destroys me if I don't stealth them to death because, you know, I play like it's a Metal Gear Solid game. And I was getting frustrated. I tried a different build. I thought maybe this game isn't going to be for me. Luckily, I used a gift card, so it wasn't really money out of my pocket. But, you know, I kind of stuck with it. And one of the big things that this game gives you is just a horse that you can ride basically anywhere. And when I stopped worrying about the fact that I couldn't beat knights or these giant demons or creatures, I just went exploring around the world and I found little guys like little rats and little birds I could beat up um, and, you know, do some paltry leveling up. But there was just a lot to discover. It very much invoked that Breath of the Wild feel where it's like, oh, that looks like an interesting thing over there. And you go over there and more often than not, you find either a boss or a key item or a mini dungeon, um, not unlike the shrines, although they're more combat oriented than anything in Zelda. And I guess that's an interesting point because I think a lot of people said Breath of the Wild incorporated some Souls-like elements into the Zelda formula, but I really had no experience with that. I don't know. Have you played any of the Souls games prior to this? I played Dark Souls 1 for about 50 hours, really enjoyed it, and then hit a point where I was just kind of done with it. And then I played Bud... I I don't think I beat Bloodborne. I played a good amount of Bloodborne. And honestly, the reason I haven't played Elden Ring is because I feel like I played Bloodborne and I feel like that's... I was like, I, I've I've got the idea. I don't need to play anymore. But I may I may play it at some point. I don't know. I have too much other stuff in my backlog. That's the other thing, problem I have right now. Mm-hmm. No, I get it. Um, I don't believe games need to be like sixty to hundred hours to justify no. like their purchase cost or anything like that. But this game, like, I do feel like I'm getting the most out of it, putting over hundred and fifty mm-hmm. hours into it. Um, which there are very few games I've even approached those kind of numbers with. And a lot of that is also I'm, especially early on, wasn't super good at that game. <laughs> um, so you would just die a lot and have yeah. to re- uh, that, repeat that's, it. But that's one of- the soul's experience. Um, yeah. I would say the other thing I have, that's not a problem. Uh, I, hmm, i trying to figure out how to word this. Because it's, Breath of the Wild is less a, 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 a um, I guess an influence point for this game for me, just seeing it as I think the true opponent of the Souls games always has been, which is Shadow of the Colossus. And mm-hmm. like, I, I think I'd rather just play Shadow of the Colossus. Um, I, I've seen that comparison a lot, and that makes a ton of sense. It is. Have you played Shadow of the Colossus? You might have. I have. I uh, yeah. played it on the PS4 re-release. Yeah. Yeah. I beat it. It's wonderful game, sublime. Um, it's one probably of the best my experiences fourth I favorite of. game. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I have like my, my five games that I have like for me are, and I'm counting the, the both the Knights of the Republic games as one game. Those that's that's like my five. It's one of my five games. MGS three is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but uh, I, I just Ring- so I have. I feel like I'm just I'm always going to be on Shadow of the Colossus' side. I love it dearly. Yeah, Shadow of the Colossus is a great game, and I can definitely see that influences here. It's the same 
General, yeah, I, I think that the general idea, though, is just like, what if the Souls games are always like, what if everything tried to kill you and Shadow of the Colossus is just the inverse of that, where it's just it's only there are only 16 enemies in that game. Mm-hmm. That's it. There, there is no one. There's when you're not fighting the Colossus, there is no combat whatsoever. And it's really it's really a delightful. Uh, it's a cosmic gumbo. <laughs> it's a it's a delightful combination to me. I, I've always really. Appreciate. It. I've only played it like three or four times, but it's just in my brain for the rest of my life. I feel like so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, Elden Ring. Uh, one thing it does that makes it a better gaming experience or a more open experience is that there's been no point where I feel like I can't get past this boss, and all I can do is just level up to fight and go try to beat this boss again mm-hmm. and again. Um, almost at every turn, I can just go elsewhere. Um, and like go entirely to new regions, unlock new uh, quest lines. And through that, by the time I return to whatever boss was giving me trouble, it either becomes a lot easier or at least to a level where I feel okay you detach doing from repeated it. Yeah. tries. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's different. The Dark Souls 1 did not have that. Dark Souls 1, I right. want to say it's linear, but Dark Souls 1 had not as many branching paths. So sometimes you just had to push your head down. That's why I stopped because I just was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. But. And I think if especially with like the first major boss in this game, Margit the Foul Omen. If I had to beat him uh, to proceed with any of the rest of the game, I might have bounced off there because mm. I was able to get to him by like hour 12, but it wasn't until like hour 25 to 30 that I actually beat him. Um, and even though I went away, explored and leveled up, I would still come back to him every couple of hours to see, am I good enough now? Am I good enough now? Um, and it took me a while, but it was also not having played any real Souls games. Like the closest I played was Jedi Fallen Order. Mm-hmm. Um, learning to get out of like bad habits in terms of like just rolling away um, and like, oh, you know, spamming buttons and not really getting a rhythm or learning the boss's moves. It took a little bit of time for me because, you know, when you come across something that's like eight times your size with a hammer that reaches halfway across the screen, your instinct is to kind of panic and run mm-hmm. um, and learning to control your panic and actually learn from what, what's going on. Um, it took a little while, but the game also gives you other couple helpful tools. Um, one of them is spirit ashes or summons. Uh, basically, you can call NPC players to help you in certain areas or against certain bosses. And this is just a big uh, help in terms of it usually exists there to just draw attention away from your character. Um, so while, like, an example is you can summon three wolves um, who will, you know, just kind of swarm whatever enemy you're fighting. And this is just good to draw away the attention, or I think the term is aggro, um, as I've been learning the soul's terminology of late. That um, That is to- also uh, MMO terminology. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh, but so, like, there, there are that's ways. Also, that's also you, the name of your horse in Shadow of the Glasses. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that is right. That is right. Um, that's very funny. I wonder if there's any connection there. Um, and so, on top of those, like, spirit ashes, you there's also sometimes, like, actual people you can summon to do some boss fights. Um, these can be unlocked by doing various side quests or delivering certain items to people. But, like, there is, like, an ensemble cast surrounding your main character, um, and they can be called in to fight against uh, bosses. There's actually one of the most impressive boss fights in this game, General Radon, who, if you've been online, you've at least probably seen that name mentioned a couple times. That's a big set piece of a fight that involves a huge ensemble of characters that you meet along the way, which makes it really unique and fun in its own way. So... 
Um, it's pretty good, and uh, it does a good job of just giving you options. I know I've said the same thing a bunch of times, but it it really allows you to kind of get your feet wet and work your way through your beginning issues. One thing I've really liked is that it's been a very communal experience for me. I don't play online, so not in that way, but rather um, I'm in a Discord server and in several DMs now that are just exclusively about this game or Souls-like games. And it's just like, hey, I'm stuck on here. Um, any ideas? And someone will be like, oh, this person's susceptible to poison. Or, you know, you should go here instead and get this weapon, which will make it easier. And um, it's been fun actually talking through and playing this game. I feel like the last time I had that was a little bit of Breath of the Wild. Um, but even then, I was still like, I want to figure this out on my own. And nothing was so difficult that I really needed to reach out for help. Uh, but I think all of that's made made it a really memorable experience for me and why I've been delaying my playing of Revengeance has been with that game. Um, a couple of my friends have said, do you want to do a full Elden Ring episode? Which maybe, maybe we'll see. Um, we'll see if Brian ends up playing it down the road. And I will mention that the character I built was a dex build or a dexterity build, um, which tend to be kind of the more stealthy um builds in the game you you know don't really have a lot of powerful weapons a lot of backstabs are useful um and i named my bandit as is the class name uh solidus because i have three brain cells and they're all allocated to metal gear that's all i really have to say right now uh i don't want to get too much into the plot or story because i know some people are still feeling their way through it but um i am very open to possibly revisiting this game in depth because it's going to be up there for me in terms of favorite games, along with Breath of the Wild and MGS3 and some of the other stuff we've talked about. But um, it's been a lot of fun, and it's kind of reinvigorated me to play some games outside of Metal Gear, uh, which has kind of been my exclusive purview since we started this podcast. But uh, perhaps Kirby comes next. We'll see. And then I have a whole backlog of stuff on Xbox Game Pass that Brian's dying for me to get to. But um, Elden Ring's good. I'm closing in on the last couple uh, locations and missions. I've unlocked the final boss, but I I like to save that for the end. Yeah, uh, why, would so you, why wouldn't you? You'll probably hear more about this, and we may do something a little more in-depth. If you want to hear a little more in-depth Elden Ring discussion, feel free to shoot me a message or leave a comment just so I know an audience is there. Uh, I know there wasn't much for you to add to this uh, segment, uh, Brian. I don't know if there is. Anything you want to mention from the outside looking in on the Elden Ring thing or uh, Souls likes I, I in general? I kind of got over it. Yeah, I, I, I really, they're a very specific kind of game that I really appreciate, but I just, ha- I'm not that experienced with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's my first. I think I am going to be into future Souls likes. Like when they come out, I will probably be there at least to give them a try. Um, definitely d- directly from FromSoft as opposed to, um, you know, there's several. Yeah, I, I would say I would say having having beaten Fallen Order and liking it, but like, um, yeah, it's uh, not quite. Uh, yeah, it's just not as it's not as um, not not quite. It's not the same thing. It's watered down a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's been one of the impacts of these Souls like games is that uh, we've st- we're starting to see their mechanics and their kind of spill over into other games, and of course, it was influenced by many games in its own way, including Shadow of the Colossus or some of the first open-world 3D Zeldas. Um, but they've created something kind of new, and um, it's its own genre at this point, which is you know a tantamount to how successful and how good the game designs have been generally.
So as you probably figured from our first 49 episodes, where I play one game, Brian plays like seven games. Uh, he's a much better gamer than I am. Mm. So uh, Brian, uh, where are you in terms of what you've been playing? Well, I'm, I'm supposed to be making my way through a bunch of my backlog, but I'm too busy playing MLB The Show 2022 because I'm a baseball freak. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a good game. You? It's a quality game. Um, really, though, I'm honestly, I'm a... I'm looking at Shohei Otani right now. Hello, Shohei. Um, I'm having a good time with it, though. It's just a fun. It's it's the uh, the card. The what is it? Uh, well, Diamond Dynasty is is the best like that mode in any game, any sports game. The uh, you know card collecting player like that. It's the it's easily the best. Partly because you know there's real baseball cards there, and I have a good amount of them. There's a Jim Edmonds I have on my team that I have in real life. I know where it is. Up my my mother's where I had to get all my cards out, but I know where that is. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's very good. You know, it's it's not really nothing really complicated about it. They have my name in the you can say it, so it's been fun to hear Boog Chambi say my name when I come up to hit uh, a bunch of singles because my guy has no power at all. But um, I don't know. I don't. It's just it's a good game. I, I enjoy it. Will be the show. I enjoy. Um, Immediately getting Eloy Jimenez and a bunch of other like super powerful hitters for all the Cubs and paying and always spending like two hundred and ten million dollars to be to win like ninety two games and lose in the NLCS. But hey, that's what we're, that's that's what we want, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I MLB the Show was the last sports game I played with any regularity, and this is going back to the show '09, so it's mm-hmm. been over a decade for me. But um, I really liked aspects of it um but back then it's just like where the games had progressed from like the ea games of 2005 like i just sucked at hitting yeah uh, so much so i spent so much of my time just kind of assembling teams drafting teams that i wanted and then you know when you do a season in that you simulate like 80 percent of the games um, well if, i if would you, usually be the if, if you I was want say, I just if you want to play a baseball game where you just do roster management and and uh, occasionally watch games, and, and but it's extremely accurate and it's it's very deep. Might I suggest, of course, Out of the Park Baseball 2023, which comes out uh, sometime soon. I'm not going to get it immediately. I'll probably wait till the summer to get it because I, I that game is unique to me because it has all because they're not they're officially licensed, but they also license with I think NCAA, so they have like college players in it and like or they just steal their names, you know, whatever. Um, but they, so they have like the actual draft prospects in it. You can do like a full 10 round draft every year and it's insane. Um, but that is a full sim game. Uh, this is, this hits that middle, like this is a, a rare modern big budget, like triple a sports game that has like a decent sim engine in it. Like you can actually, unlike, uh, some other games who will may remain nameless and that have done everything they can to alienate their, uh, franchise players. Uh, this game is still pretty good at that, so I'm still enjoying it. But more than that, I'm trying to finish all the Yakuza games. It's been a little over a year. Uh, when did I finish Yakuza 0? It would have been, yeah, it was late 2020. And then I played Kiwami 1, Kiwami 2, which are the remakes of the first two games. The, went through those pretty quickly. Yakuza 3 I beat about a year ago. And then uh, maybe maybe May. Yakuza 4 I beat over like... I, I waited till like August or so. I beat that in the fall. And then Yakuza 5, I started. It was before I came up. It was before November because before I was in Chicago, but I hadn't played right, that much. It. I, I, I was still pretty early into it. And then I'm, I'm not quite done with it, but I'm through three of the four major parts of it. 
and I, I need to just finish that because then I got to play six, and then I got to play Judgment, and then I got to play seven, and then I got to play uh, the second Judgment game. Um, uh, was it Lost Judgment? Lost Judgment. But um, I yeah, they're 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 extremely good. The only the real pitch for them is if you remember Shenmue, remember imagine if that was a real game that had like <laughs> it was like done, you know, like you you didn't have to imagine what it was like. It's what it's what it was. And uh, hmm, I guess I'm still playing Cyberpunk. I don't know. I haven't played it for like two and a half weeks, but I'm I'm, I'm mostly done with it. I've well, I got it for twenty. It was twenty dollars, so I'm not like mad that I spent money on it. But, um, I've seen a fair amount of people tweeting about it recently, saying, "Oh, it probably got it on the same sale as you did." Or yeah, well, I waited reduced price. Yeah, I waited until they they had the actual updated next gen version of it, which runs pretty and, well. And uh, everyone's saying, "Yeah, it's pretty fine, actually." Um, it's okay. It's Noah Gervais had a long video about it, and I, the thing I, I took from it, I have to go find this quote actually, but it's it's. It really is, even more so than something like Mass Effect, it really is just a collection of tropes from that genre with nothing really interesting to say about it. Because Mass Effect has something interesting to say. Mm-hmm. But, um... Let me, let me look. I mean, a game I specifically... I enjoyed but didn't like love was Ghost of Tsushima, mm-hmm. which was kind of the same thing where it obviously wanted to pay homage to various samurai games, to Kurosawa films. And in that, it was great. It was like one of the most beautifully presented games, but it never really engaged with, you know, the ideas behind it. The way we talk about Metal Gear is like, oh, yeah, it's pulling in all this action movie shit, but it's like actively engaging with what its influences are in a way that's like interrogative, but like, you know, deep, and it just felt like Ghost of Tsushima is was just like, oh, here's the aesthetic of it. Now go do your standard open world and combat stuff. I'm trying to find this No Gervais quote I had, but it's um, I, the real problem with Cyberpunk is that it is almost completely uncritical of capitalism in any way, which is a problem for a cyber, cyberpunk a yeah. cyberpunk game yeah it's not a cyberpunk it's not a punk game at all there's no it's just like a collection of of stories from other you know from like a just from uh, like neuromancer and all the like Johnny I mean Johnny Mnemonic because because Keanu's in it I'm sure there's some Akira in it I'm um, sure yeah a little yeah um and it looks great like it looks the city is really well, the city is really good looking. Some parts of the city are better looking than others. Like some parts were not finished or were not done to the same level of clarity. And and uh, but that's okay, you know. Um, it's just it's I don't know. It just doesn't have the soul of cyberpunk in it at all. It's really a collection of of stories that are, are kind of vaguely cyberpunk. It has no it. It doesn't have a point. It has no like overarching message or concept to it it's just a cyberpunk game it's very good at that but it's it's a little it's a little disheartening honestly and it um now i'm thinking of uh comparisons to like uncharted which wants to be an indiana jones thing but then also you just mm-hmm. like kill mm-hmm. 300 million people um and nathan drake's just fine <laughs> after that the thing the thing i will give it credit for um like the witcher the little side stories like the moment to moment stuff the writing is very good like it's just good the characters all like all the main characters you go you meet are like for the most part like interesting which is impressive but it um 
Yeah, it's it's just like yeah. Here's the quote I found it. This Night City has as much to do with Robert Gibson's Night City as the New York New York Casino in, Ve- in Vegas has to do with the real New York. That's what it is. And then yeah, you know, the other the other quote, the the one that really accurately describes the circumstances this game was made in. Corporate, corporate capitalism does not care if you hate it. In fact, they could take that hate, package it in neon and chrome, and sell it back to you for sixty dollars. Uh, that's really what it feels like. But the real interesting comparison for me is a game like Deus Ex: Mankind Divided, which had its own marketing problems. But uh, that's a game that has probably a hundred and fiftieth, like a hundred fifty times smaller, well, a hundred times smaller, like map. But it's just deeply. There are some places in Cyberpunk where it really does feel like every you can do. There's some little blocks that were so obviously designed to be. They can go inside every building. You can do everything in there. When it does that, it's great. When it doesn't do that, it's it has the GTA problem of you're just driving by a bunch of buildings with nothing in them. It's just like padding to make it seem big. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate that shit personally. And Deus Ex Mankind Divide is the antithesis of that. It's it's like, I don't know, maybe six or seven city blocks, but it's fully, you can go inside everything, you can do everything. It's great. It's really detailed. Um, I guess the, the the question is, do you want your, your, your um, I could say, Mecha Divide is kind of cyberpunk, I guess. Do you want your cyberpunk game to have no message, but be really huge and have a lot of features? Or do you want it to be really small, have very few features, but have been really, really, all those really fleshed out, but and have like a confused, weird, bad slavery metaphor as its message? That's really what, what kind of weird, uh, like, aborted uh, cyberpunk do you want? Because those are the two main options we've had in the last few years. I say yeah, that. Yeah, that game came out six years ago. I don't know. That game, though, Mankind Divided into side stories is fine. It's just its main plot. They had no pull for it. They had no idea what it was. So they had a really a bunch of uh, French people who were like, ah, let's do a slavery metaphor. That'll work for us, right? And I was like, I don't know about that. Yeah, maybe not. But they got, they got yelled at. I mean, they got hammered. The marketing was just really bad. It's what killed that game. It's a, it's a fine game otherwise. Like, it plays really, really well. And it's just really smooth looking, but you know, I killed it. I, also, yeah, what also killed think, it was Square Enix not truly not giving a shit about its Western games. They don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they want they want every single one to sell fifty million copies. Yeah, they don't do anything to help them. So when they don't, they gut that company and make them all work on Avengers games. That's what uh, happened. Great, but. Yeah, no, I think a lot of what might be damning about Cyberpunk, besides, you know, the lack of messages, probably a lot on the production, the timelines, and maybe a rush to get the game to market mm. when it probably could have used a little more time. Um, well, or at least wasn't ready for the next gen jump or um, I mean, no, I don't the know people if it was, who work there have said they weren't the game was not close to being done, but they just forced mm-hmm. it out. The other problem they, they had, had, and this is this is this is a uh this is good because it's a broader this actually does tie into Metal Gear, because I've been asked multiple times by people who don't know what it is like in my in like what is metal gear and you have to try and explain it this is a problem with that kind of game it's a problem with immersive sims you can't really just market them on like two things um but cyberpunk in particular really felt like it has not sinister marketing campaign but they like they when people would ask them what the game was and they they the problem. This is a big problem with video game journalism too it's it's like they want you to write the story for them when you when you have an interview so, like, mm-hmm. journalists would ask the developers, like, oh, what kind of game is it? Can you do this? And they would just go, yeah, sure, you can do that. 
for everything people said. So when that game was being marketed, it came, it looked like it was the ultimate game. Like you could do everything and anything you could ever imagine you could do. And you can do a good amount of that stuff. It's just really like not deep at all. It's just completely unfleshed out. Like there's nothing to it, but it's just there to tick off a box, you know, Mm -hmm. to tick a box off a checklist. And, um, but really like they, they, they did not really, I mean, that's a, there wasn't gameplay for that game until like eight or nine months before it was supposed to come out. There was no like actual uh, confirmed gameplay footage of it. So it just became like this thing to people. People don't know. I would say, and this is a problem I have. Even people I know on Twitter who, I mean, not not people like Mark, friend of the podcast, friend of the pod, but like people who are more casual game players. I see them all the time. Like they don't know what kind of games they. They don't know what they like. They don't know why they like the games they like. So they just kind of. They just they just don't know what like they don't know what they're looking for. So they just sort of fall into that kind of stuff you know oh this game says it's going to be it's 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 very easy to be marketed to in gaming it's very easy to trick people and i just feel like people need to have a better just know more what they like so they know what to look for like that's why i'm really glad i found out what even though immersive sim is like a bad name for a genre now that once i figured out what that was and i want to say 2012 2013 that that kind of game is a game i always look for and i've always enjoyed them every single one that markets itself is that they they don't sell well because they're deeply complicated games with very they don't have like a one thing you can say that's like their genre hallmark but when you when you're playing an immersive sim it is an immersive there's nothing else there's no other game like it um and that's why they've all failed to sell Except for like, Dishonored 2. Dishonored, Dishonored 2 sold decently. I guess Bioshock sold really well, but that's not really... That's kind of a, a little watered-down, pun intended, version of an immersive sim. Great game, though. I love Bioshock. But yeah, I don't know. Cyberpunk... I don't hate Cyberpunk, because I think it, there is value in it. There is There are some good stories in it. There is some good writing. It looks really good. There's some really... There are some topics it broaches that are interesting, but it's obvious as you're as you're going into them that it's it's they don't have an opinion on it. It's just like, hey, look at this, which is the worst kind of way to make that kind of game. But but I don't I don't think it's an evil or bad game. I think it's just doesn't know it has no it doesn't want to know it has no identity of its own and it doesn't want to have one, which is kind of disappointing. Anything else you want to talk about besides those games? I mean, I, I, I guess I played Halo four months ago. It's, it's great. It's Halo. It gets you really Halo. I don't know. Halo Infinite. Halo Infinite. Halo Infinite was. They successfully made it open world. I'm really more honestly the thing I'm most interested with Halo Infinite is what the co-op is going to be, and we're not going to know for a couple more months. So, I, you know, it's not out yet because I don't know how that's going to work. But I, I enjoyed it. I'm a big Halo guy, and I thought it was the best one that three four three has made, which is, I don't know. I don't know if it's we can make some uh, space to talk about when the multiplayer is up. Uh, We can talk about it a little bit then. I know we've kind of talked about it, or you've mentioned it a couple times during our normal coverage. Anyways, maybe I'll get Um, you to. Oh, I'm done with it now because I hit level 100. (laughs) I I I'm not gonna play it by myself anymore. So if anyone else wants to play it with me, that's my. uh, If any of my friends want to play it with me, I, I let them. But other than that, I'm I'm done with it until the second season comes out, which is next month. 
I'll, I'll play it then. I'm not going to play it as hard as I did. I have other stuff gotcha. to play now. But um, yeah, I don't know. Halo Infinite works pretty well. Yeah, I, I'm not done with Death's Door. You mentioned that. It's on our list here. That is a delightful little game. Two-man game. Uh, it's... It's the first game in a while. I know there are other indie games like this, but it is like a length in the past kind of game. That's that's the style. Um, it's a little 3D game, but it has that uh, top-down Zelda feel. I guess this game Tunic does as well. I haven't played it yet. It's also on Game Pass. Um, but those are the, that's that's the kind of game you don't see as much. Um, it even kind of looks like Link's the Link's Awakening remake, like stylistically. <laughs> but it's just a sweet little game. The combat is like kind of is is tough but not like insanely tough it's just kind of annoyingly tough that's that's the problem i'm having with it i'm not done with it yet but i'm fairly close um it's got great little like themed areas with different the basic i mean i guess the concepts are hard to explain but the basic idea is that each area has like a main boss that you keep running into and you the, the whole area is just you working your way up to that boss and then killing them and taking their soul so you can power up this other soul. You power up enough to get open death's door and see what's behind it, which is like your main goal. Um, uh, it's really great though. Like all, all the, the three main, I, I haven't killed the third one yet, but the other two, they're like, they're all like, they've been alive too long. So like these huge grotesque monsters, but they also look, it's a game with a really sweet art style. So they're just like, one's like this huge old lady who keeps herself alive. And one's this like frog King. Who's cool? He just like kills. <laughs> I don't know. It's very whimsical, but it's it's very melancholy at the same time. It has a great art style. It has great great music. The combat's pretty fun. You play as a little crow man with a little sword. It's fun. It's a good game. It's a quality game. It's not that long. It's difficult, but not like brutally difficult. I I, I like Death Door quite a lot. It's a fun little game. Uh, what else am I? Playing? You want to talk about any of these, or do you want to pivot to Metal Gear? I mean, I want to just mention again that I am replaying Psychonauts. Another of my yeah, 10 favorite uh, the games. The first one, right? Yeah, I'm going to blow through that, and I'm going to replay Psychonauts too because it's been a little over a year since it came out. I love it. I haven't played Norco yet. That's another game I have on this list. Norco is apparently incredible. I'm going to play it. It's it's on Game Pass PC. I just haven't played it yet. I'm too busy. My my problem now is I part of it was I was using, if I was on my PC, I was using it to follow along with like, game you know college games or, or nba games or cubs games or whatever and when i've been watching stuff on my pc i've been playing a lot of the show because you don't really need to listen to that mm-hmm. so i haven't I, i've just been like too lazy to not lazy too preoccupied to focus on one thing on my pc so but i will play it i will play norco i've heard too many good things i bet it's good it's the third there's only I know it's gotten comparisons to Kakarot Zero. I know the creator is like not happy with that. I mean, I guess he's he understands it, but it's like the only reason those games are being compared, and I will throw Night in the Woods in this comparison, is because they are games about they're a new kind of subgenre of like art game or adventure game, whatever we would call those, where it's set like the main pull of the game, from what I can tell of Norco, is that it's set in an area. I'm going to call them post-recession games because they're set in areas that are dying economically. Mm-hmm. Night in the Woods is like in, a, in some sort of rust belt town where the mine is closed, so, all the, so it's just slowly being suffocated. That game has a great... One of the things I love about that game, and there are some, there are some problems, uh, namely in the um, one of the three 
heads of that game of Night in the Woods, which is that's uh, Scott Benson's game you know, uh, at Bob's Fall. Um, Tim and his partner were like the main creative focus of it, but then the third person, their music guy, turned out to have been a uh, he's incredibly accused of rape by a bunch of people and then committed suicide. Ugh. Ugh. And it's just kind of I, I don't think they're going to make a game again. Like they seem to have they did the right thing. Like they they had they put a statement out that. Um, Scott and Bethany put a statement out that was like, this guy's our friend, but we're going to take this stuff seriously. Like, you know, we're not going to ignore these allegations. It's, you know, we, for now we're, we're not planning unless they've just said like, we're not planning on working with him again. Like it's unfortunate. We're really sorry for all this is anyone, you know, if anyone thought we wouldn't react to this the way we should, we're, we apologize, you know? And then like a week later he, he committed suicide and he, I think they just kind of, didn't know what to do, so it's very unfortunate. It's a it's sucks because it's music is very good in this game and you can't really enjoy it anymore. But I still think it's a game worth playing, worth experiencing because it's about that kind of. It's a game about like that about young adulthood that's written they're very obviously written from the perspective of people who are past young. It's not people trying to be like I like Life is Strange a lot. It's a great game. That game's biggest problems and some of its biggest strengths are that it's written by a bunch of men in their 30s and 40s and it trying to be from the perspective of teenage girls. And they do like they they deserve credit for earnestly attacking some of attacking strong word earnestly engaging with some of those ideas like suicide, dysmorphia, stuff like that. But it's still there's a little bit of if you're not really into earnest earnestness, you won't like Life is Strange. Like it's just it's cloying a little oppressive with that stuff sometimes. Night in the Woods is very much just written. It's obviously written to appeal to people in their late twenties and thirties and early forties about that time in their lives, which is much, I think, a much more successful way to do that kind of thing. <clears throat> but Night in the Woods um, really, really perfectly captures that because the main character has has um, dropped out of college and moved back home to her hometown after two years away. So it really perfectly captures that like. 19, 20, 21, 22 period where especially if you're from like a smaller area or you're just from you you have like a specific home which I think everyone does but you know like no <laughs> nobody's been like yeah I'm from the loop like okay uh, right. um, but uh, that that period where like you have your group of friends that you still hang out with but you all know like this is the end of it. Like you, this is like, you're all leaving, but you're just kind of stuck there. And you don't really have any, you have no, it's the period in your life when you kind of really come to terms with the fact that you were lied to as a child, you can't actually do everything you want. You will have to like, you had, you, you're not grown up yet, but you, you understand it now. You finally get it. And you're just kind of treading water until things either make sense or they don't. And a spoiler alert, they don't. Uh, it's that. It's it's got that great, like it it really truly it might be the first piece of American media that I've experienced since Malcolm in the Middle that really understands that like like all the adults have multiple jobs. There's there are nobody makes it. There's no you know, like there's no there's no point where you 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 you've succeeded. You've Achieved your goals. You just kind of have to keep working until you die. And all the jobs are gone. All the everything is slowly, slowly decaying. That perfect small town American decay. 
I don't even want to call it urban decay or rural decay. The rural decay is Kentucky Route Zero, but it's just decay. Everything is slowly being squeezed to death. It's a wonderful experience, and Norco seems like that's what it's about also. So this is a subgenre for me that I'm very interested in. It's um very bittersweet, kind of morose subgenre. Kentucky Route Zero, I think, stands out because it's a magical realist game on top of that, which is a really fascinating combination of having that like sober um yeah like just that that kind of economic dis- despair also mixed in with like ghosts and, t- and television sets and like all that weird shit but those those are all those are three games i think yeah i have not even played norco yet but from what i have seen of it i think i would recommend it wholly just like i would recommend those other two games and other than that i'm just sort of it's weird i need to really move through my backlog because my thing this year i was just waiting for breath of the wild 2 which is Mm-hmm. Now, no, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I still am waiting for it, but at this right, point, right? Understood. Can they just? I really want them to just give it a title. I hate calling it Breath of the Wild Two. That's not what it's called. I guarantee that they've never done that before. Why would they do it now? But uh, I, as they keep telling us, it's it, the name is a spoiler, so they're gonna wait to reveal it until close to the game comes out, which won't be for another at least ten months, which is unfortunate. So to wrap up our 50th episode, we'll we'll end with a little Metal Gear chat. Mostly kind of what we've thought so far, what we're looking forward to with the last two canonical-ish games. <laughs> um, I guess we're bending it with Revengeance a little bit, but I treat it as canon more or less. Uh, or at least an anime that Otacon wrote. And we'll also talk a little bit about games that have influenced Metal Gear since it came out in 1998 and all of its subsequent updates. So... Uh, looking back on our first 50 or so episodes, has anything kind of stood out to you, Brian, in terms of what you've learned or something you didn't really realize or think about prior to us doing this podcast? A lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff I was familiar with, but I guess I wouldn't say I knew that well. So a lot of your research on that has been really interesting. Um, I guess I realized that... See, I don't want to say that because I, I, I think I always pretty took all the political stuff pretty seriously in these games. But I think, I think, you know, there's more, thir- there's more, this is the, this is the, the case. And anytime you like, I could sit down and watch every Coen brothers movie and you, you, you start to see patterns like uh, let's namely for the Coen brothers that they have a very, let's say uncharitable view of police. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so like that, like there's just things that, that you don't really think of like, though that it, it's more coherent than I think I remember would have given it credit for and i was somebody who always kind of thought it was but there's a lot of things that come together really well in it and yeah you know i don't really have i don't really know what else to say about it they're good they're great yeah i'll uh i'll yes and you on the technology side of things uh 
I assume most of you don't know what my previous profession was, but I was a developer. I wrote programs, boring like audit software, not anything like a video game, but in understanding more about databasing, uh, memory storage, uh, memory usage when running applications, uh, understanding how these Metal Gear games were built, how they interface with the PlayStation consoles or now Xboxes. And that Kojima took such a whole comprehensive approach to gaming um, that's really stood out to me. Like I, I was aware of like Meryl's codec on the back of the box and the controller port and Psycho Mantis, but I always just thought of those as quirks and less as part of an ideology of video game creation and production, which I think has been nice. And then all the technical wizardry that has gone into it, how they've had to make sure that environments look smooth, or if they can't get the fidelity they want, how they've been able to work around that. So they went to an environment-based approach to building out their games and how they worked in diegetic, uh, or not diegetic, but it's the same game engine doing the cutscenes as it is the mm-hmm. actual game. Um, that has been great. And I think the other thing I realized is how much I like the Solid Snake character, who, by the way, was probably my favorite video game character beforehand anyways. But my favorite two games are Metal Gear Solid 3 and then some version of Metal Gear Solid 5, um, which I know isn't the real big boss, but it's the big boss games I always thought were the meatiest, the best, um, the ones I think are the crowding achievements of the series. But I think really digging into Metal Gear Solid 2 specifically really stuck out how awesome Solid Snake is just as a character. And I think along with that, I've appreciated David Hayter's voice performance a lot more. Um, I've always liked it, but now being able to say, hey, he's played essentially the same character in five games, and in each one, I can point out exactly how it's different from the other mm-hmm. four. Um, that specifically, I think, it shows a lot of range for a character whose deliveries don't have a lot of range. Um, but in that like small spectrum, he's able, like I can tell you Old Snake from, you know, Peace Walker, Big Boss from, you know, Metal Gear Solid 1. And I think Metal Gear Solid 1 is another one where the, last act of it, I didn't realize how cool Solid Snake really was in his Mm self-actualization. I don't think I had it in those terms specifically. Um, So that has been kind of eye-opening. I mean, I don't think it's shocking to anyone that I love these games and probably love them more than anyone else in the world or I'm up there. Um, So it's not like I can love these games that much more than I did when we started at the beginning of 2020. But I think the appreciation I have for it is a lot deeper and more robust um, because it's less about, oh, I like this game because it has anti-nuclear and anti-war themes and I like stealth mechanics. I now view it as all part of a bigger a bigger philosophy around gaming that I think Kojima has really mastered in a way. And I look forward to you know diving into new games for me uh, Revengeance, which isn't a Kojima directed game, but you know, he kind of oversaw it and he had some kind remarks about it. And then Death Stranding, when we get to that, which I haven't completed and I don't think Brian has either. No. Um, that'll also be fun to have all this kind of academic research and these kind of discourses in our head as we plow through into that game, which even in 2019, when Death Stranding came out, I did not have this holistic analysis of Metal Gear um, beyond like the tweets I'd fire off or the random thoughts, you know, juggling around in my skull. But um, I think that's like the biggest thing I've realized so far in our coverage. I kind of want to hand this next question off to you, Brian, is how do you see like Metal Gear Solid's influence and maybe specifically the first 
four to five games, you know, through Peace Walker and how that's made its way into other games, whether, you know, just like bits and pieces or just kind of wholesale lifted for other games, um, perhaps other stealth games. Well, it's hard to really track. Uh, I think you would want, oh, excuse me. You would be looking for like specific like story beats, I think, if you were, if you're not familiar with Metal Gear. And there's really not a lot. Um, but I think I think very specifically for my uh, my purposes, Hitman is is the closest thing to it. And then just a lot of the immersive sim stealth games in general seem to have a lot of respect for Metal Gear, maybe more than influence. Like I said, Deathloop has an OS has a master of OSP achievement for like because you can bring weapons into every, you you have a loadout before you go into every mission, which is not really. I'm not saying not going to say that they took that from MGSV. That's just kind of a thing. But when mm-hmm. you um, it's when you do that, and then you you, but you can also just find every level has guns in them, and a lot of them are in the same places every time you do it. And so there's an achievement for like getting a, a certain amount of damage, I think, or, or kills done with those guns that you find, and it's it's called Master of OSP, and like that's a specific Metal Gear reference. That's not the that's not something you can you can really be confused about. Um, but yeah, Hitman in general, I think, is the closest thing to Metal Gear. It's a game. Based around fucking with guards, so it's 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 Snake Eater's like true air. I feel like in a lot of ways. Um, I'm trying to think now of other games. I know we had a list of it before. Uh, one thing I want to mention is I saw one of my uh, mutuals, uh, Gretchen Felker Martin, tweeting about Elden Ring uh, yesterday. And she was talking about how you're not just fighting monsters, but the monsters kind of limp, get tired, um, like they show signs of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I instantly thought to uh, Metal Gear Solid 1 and Kojima talking about how he wants his guards to be yawning, taking bathroom breaks, um, just kind of being real people and not just, you know, marks to shoot at uh, on a you know, target practice or a shooting range or something like that. Um, And, you know, Metal Gear Solid was one of the first real games to, at least on a console, really dive into, like, the minds and the lived experience of the enemy sentries, Mm -hmm. uh, such as it was. It's not like it's robust or deep, but uh, seeing, like, that little meme carry forward to now where people are so into these giant Elden Ring bosses, like limping their way into a battle arena because of something you did earlier in the game or something like that. Um, And again, and I'm not saying Metal Gear invented this, but it really kind of reshaped the way I thought about how enemies should be depicted in video games. And you can see that its influences everywhere in any kind of game that has some kind of thoughtful approach to the violence within it. I would say, I would say this more... Um, I would say there's more a, uh, a, a general, I would say, uh, God damn it. Let me think here. The stealth genre in, in general has been more influenced by, cause it, MGS is one of like stealth games existed before 1998, obviously like the original Wolfenstein was like that, but, um, 98 is often seen as a year when like a lot of that stuff at the very least a lot of the terminology we use for stealth games was kind of codified by Metal Gear Solid by Tenchu and by Thief. Mm-hmm. Those are the three that kind of I guess yeah those are the three that kind of I have no other way to say the codified. They made a lot of that terminology kind of more mainstream and a, and every stealth game 
Because, I mean, I'm sure, like, the Assassin's Creed games have a lot of Metal Gear in them. I'm sure, like, uh, I mean, obviously, um, uh, what is it? The Tom Clancy ones do. Splinter Cell. Mm-hmm. Uh, Splinter yeah, Cell. Yeah, a game like Siphon uh, Filter. Siphon Filter. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, that's, I think that's more where it comes from. But I also feel like, I do also feel like, just thinking about it, a lot of the visual language of, like, I don't say cyberpunk stuff, but like, like cyborg stuff has really, Gray Fox in particular is really kind of like a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of cyborg stuff in games and anime from that time. Although that the anime thing is maybe more that's just kind of how the '90s were in Japan. They were also depressed and 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 such a huge depression that they just sort of everyone kind of looked like that. A lot of gray yeah, looking. I think but. that might be an interesting point too in that. I don't think as a young kid or even maybe even 10 years ago, I realized how Japanese Metal Gear Solid was Mm. Uh, just between my own lack of exposure to both Japanese film and anime specifically at the time. And because Metal Gear Solid itself is wrapped up in The Rock and The Thing and Die Hard and Escape from New York, like it feels like the most Western thing imaginable. And Gray Fox specifically in that first movie is like it's supposed to be not upsetting, but it should be jarring that all of a sudden this like cyberpunk ass ninja is here out of what seemed like a Steven Seagal movie or yeah. something like that. Um, and I think now I have a real appreciation for that. And I think for a lot of people, especially um, I'm a little bit older than Brian and I grew up in an age where a lot of people and fr- frankly, a lot of people still my age think of anime as just perverted cartoons from Japan. <laughs> like we had no real sense hey, of it, I was but born it's in like the whenever 80s. I feel like that too. Technically, I was um, born so in like, the 80s. I was born in the middle of 1989. So, hey. Hey, there you go. Uh, just in time to see The Last Crusade. I <laughs> um, don't know why I made that reference. Uh, but, yeah, it's like this was our first exposure to, um, like, a lot of... And, like, we saw it, like, in other video games because Japan was definitely the leading video game creator until, like, the Xbox uh, really came along and made Western production as on equal footing or at least as popular in the West. Uh, but I feel like a lot of my initial introductions to anime concepts or like Japanese culture are actually embedded mm-hmm. in Metal Gear Solid that I wasn't able to pick out until much later in life. Sorry, that, you just reminded me of uh, one of my favorite uh, show opens of, of from Mr. Show, which is uh, Bob and, and David Cross uh, having a, a fake argument about like their influences. And then Bob just cutting to the audience and be like, sorry guys, we're, we just realized we can't do this show anymore. We're two culturally really different. I was. We were born in different times. I I was came of age in the in the early seventies, and David came of age in the mid seventies. <laughs> and she's like, he. Oh, man. I like Star Wars. He likes Empire Strikes Back. I'm in the shot on ah. He likes that Bangle shit. And just them being like, and David's being like, "Fuck you, old man." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great bit. Because they're like four uh, years but, apart. So yeah, that's what you so just. I, that's I what you reminded that, me of of being like. Yeah. You're that like, generation divide is probably not there for me and you, but it's just like all of my mutuals who are under the age of 30, they yeah. are all basically, oh yeah, I grew up with anime. It's just a normal thing. We all watch. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember stuff. when Cryo Bebop came out. I mean, it's not Bebop entirely. That was kind of a boom in general, but I remember seeing Bebop in like 2001 and, and thinking it was much different from what I had assumed anime was. Well, uh, in my age, we had a Aeon Flux yep. on MTV, like very early. It was literally on after Beavis and Butthead, um, and it looked super cool. And me and my friends, I watched Ghost in the Shell when I was young. Although, it, like, although you know, I don't think Aeon Flux really um, would have done much to 
to dispute the uh, the con- the idea that anime was perverted <laughs> cartoons because boy that show yeah exactly <laughs> um, but yeah so it's just like that's one of the things where I can tell there is now a huge not a huge general g- generation divide but it, when I tell my friends who are of my age and who don't watch anime that I watch anime they're not exactly sure what to make of that yeah. where I'm like yep. oh it's just it's just like this is just a standard art form a form of media that's just took you know didn't catch on with our generation but basically everyone younger than I would us no, is like, I yeah, would say it caught on it caught on with starting with our generation like yes our generation because uh, is like the kind of the beginning of that late 90s the the Japanese media boom overseas that that's kind of where we came from I don't know that I'm just I'm imagining you being like I like mobile suit Gundam Brian likes that G Gundam shit <laughs> I do like that G Gundam shit um. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's it. Yeah, and, and Metal Gear is kind of the. I mean, it's we we talked about it before. That's sort of the. There's like a weird through line between that and like Eva, that is like that's like '90s Japanese culture to us, to people like us. Because boy, uh, Eva sure is '90s Japanese culture. Yes, she is. Uh, so real quick to wrap up. Uh, what are you looking forward most to the last two Metal Gear games we're going to cover? Playing or at Revengeance. Least... <laughs> you playing You getting to I the mean... end of Revengeance is what I'll, 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 I'll let uh, people who know that game know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, I, I have a taste because I've been watching clips of it and listening to the scores for the last 10 years because they're all over the internet. Revengeance has quite a fan base. Uh, but it... <laughs> I did get through like the first two to three hours before I got Elden Ring, and I was having a blast with did it. Did you so get to Mistral much... yet? I don't remember if you said you did. No, I don't think so. I beat the first Ray, um, yeah. the Ray that's a boss fight. I've encountered yeah. a couple other Rays that are just uh, you know mini bosses or whatever. Um, I you did beat the bossing. Yeah, yes, yeah. I beat Wolf. That's exactly. And I saw the woman. Yes, Mistral, uh, yeah. who looks looks to be the next uh, yeah. boss I'm going to be fighting. So. Of the Winds of Destruction. Uh, that's the. Yeah, we talked about in, in Peace Walker, there's no, like, enemy special forces unit. Well, that's all there is pretty much in Revengeance, so. I just, like, I'm there's, like, very much looking forward there's, to like, it. guys to cut in half. You know, that's fun. And I know, um, like, Revengeance isn't a Souls-like game. It's probably closer to something like Bayonetta. Yes. Um, but it is kind of fun that I'm going to be spending this... You know, I spent 300-ish hours doing Elden Ring as a melee build, so I've been doing, you know, timing, fighting, parrying, blocking. Um, so I want to see if that helps. That may hurt prior, you because the parrying in Revengeance is very different from what I know. It's, it is. I, I had some difficulty with it when I was first getting started. Um, and sometimes I don't know if that's, like, the game or if it's me because I tried playing that first Bayonetta game, and it, it handles kind of rough, but then you go to Bayonetta 2, and it handles like a dream. Yeah, the game um, the game itself, I think, does not do a good job of explaining to you how it wants you to parry. That's that's the problem with it. But you'll figure it out. That might be it, yeah. You'll figure it out. There's a, uh, a specific boss. If you don't figure it out by then, you will not beat him. So, But it's also like you can figure it out during that fight. It's not that hard. It's just different. It's it's it'll take you a second, I imagine. Um, and then I guess for me, I've been looking forward to V a lot, as I've mentioned throughout the podcast. Uh, it's kind of where I think I can bring home everything we've been saying about every game, and I don't do it to be redundant, but I very much view my analysis as 
I've been speaking to you in the language of Metal Gear. That's why I use the same phrases and words like proxies and phantoms and all that stuff. And all that stuff I feel really solidifies in V. V is very much like Metal Gear Solid 2 with like a big twist, taking away your protagonist. It's almost like uh, the Ground Zeroes is that Pizza Hut demo disc uh, in its own little way. And I don't think it's as successful in its execution of that specifically as Metal Gear Solid 2. Uh, But I do think... Basically, everything we've talked about with all the previous four numbered Metal Gears, as well as uh, Peace Walker, I think will really pay off because that is kind of the magnum opus. And it also has some of the more controversial elements of the Metal Gear saga from is it a complete game to quiet. Uh, There's just going to be a lot of interesting conversations. And I actually kind of want to do, if not a full episode on David Bowie, um, at least like Mm. a big section on the David Bowie influences in that game. And then we can use that to look backwards at all the David Bowie stuff in Metal Gear, which I think we talked about last time as well we recorded. Um, I think it'll be great to um, really dive into that. I think Metal Gear Solid V will give us more gateways into side topics than possibly anything has before it. And that's coming off Peace Walker, where we did whole episodes on like Latin America history that are kind of only tangentially related to the game. I, but uh, I think we get, yeah, go ahead. Let me think here. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm finish up. You finish your thought because I do have another thought. Yeah, no, it's just that uh, I think we can have a lot more fun and I think we can do some more fun side episodes around Metal Gear Solid V. What I would like to do for the podcast, um, no no promises here, is I would love to play at least Metal Gear 1, the first uh, MSX game on the MGS3 subsistence copy I have, uh, just because how that ending ties into the ending of Phantom Pain. Uh, so we might do like an extra episode or a bonus episode, because one thing that will be fun talking about V is kind of pulling apart everything about the Venom Snake big boss switch. So when... Um, you know, the end of Metal Gear 1 on MSX is a solid snake fighting, quote unquote, Big Boss that we find out is Venom Snake. What did Big Boss want to happen there? The real Big Boss. Did he want Solid Snake to kill his phantom? Did he want his phantom to kill his son that he never wanted? Mm-hmm. Um, did he just kind of want to see what happened out of all of that and use it as a distraction so he could continue his plan against the Patriots? Um, when Sniper Wolf is dying and says Saladin came and saved her, did she mean big boss did she mean venom snake um does she even know do any anyone else know about the switch besides ocelot and kaz uh so there's gonna be a lot of fun hypotheticals i don't think we really have answers to Mm -hmm. but we'll at least be more open-ended to discuss than probably anything we've discussed so far with metal gear i would say the other thing i am looking forward to is to kind of parse of, i guess uh engaging with is the one thing about Revengeance that I think is is worth really discussing, and I think we might do a whole episode about it, is it is closer to that alt-right concept of Metal Gear that those people have than anything else, which is really interesting, because I think I think you're, it's supposed it's a, it's, a, it's more of a game about individualism. That's the the idea is right in embracing that. And I, I that's politically interesting, because it's still very much like it, it very like it definitely still hammers home a lot of the, you know, the proxy war stuff and the uh, just the idea of how hellish war has become in this universe. That's a, I mean, that's a big thing in that game. And there's a lot of stuff, this child soldier stuff that's still politically it's on that same spectrum. But I think 
the way Raiden and the main villains interact, I think, is more open to that kind of like it's it's like an except it's not a it, this isn't Raiden is not a pacifist. <laughs> no, he absolutely is not. Give war a chance, right? Like the 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 game really is about him embracing the Jack the Ripper stuff. That's sort of the his arc in the game. So I think that's an that's a different kind of storyline than the other every other Metal Gear game. And I really am interested to really for your thoughts about that when we get to it. I can say my early thoughts are very positive, so I'm excited to see what the rest of the game has. It's definitely I I would say definitely if you're an alt right Metal Gear fan, that's probably your favorite game. If you have any sort of political coherence in you at all, which I know is saying a lot for those people. Giving them a lot of credit. Well, we definitely know that will not be my approach mm-hmm. to the game. So that's mission complete for this episode. Before I do our regular sign-off, hey, we hit 50 episodes, so thank you for listening, and uh, thank you, Brian, for doing this with me. It's been a lot of fun the last year and a half, I think it is now, um, and looking forward to see what the end of Metal Gear has in store for us, as well as possibly what lies beyond. The end of history. <laughs> our frequency is podcastsonsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsonsfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sans Frontiers and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. Which Manuclear Bomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering The Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. Uh, I'm still Brian, and I don't have a sign-off for this one because it's a one-off. All right. Shout-out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. And I also don't have a sign-off for this, so bye. When heavens divide, I will see the choices with